0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 77. The period between 1816 and 1819 saw the level of conflict rise significantly across southern Africa. Not only were the Zulu beginning their ascent to power in the east, but in the frontier district of the Cape, war was afoot. The seer, the man we've tracked for a few episodes, Ingele, was about to make his move and the repercussions of his actions reverberated across the subcontinent and in some ways they continue to reverberate there's a direct line between england and Tlambe and our present political condition as we cover this seemingly distant period in our history you'll begin to see these correlations you know the profound truth of history that people who forget history are doomed to repeat it there's perhaps no more pertinent proof of that truism than what we're going to hear over the next few episodes. And the role of the well-meaning missionaries are intrinsically bound up in this truth. The pathetically earnest London Missionary Society's Joseph Williams, the young Scot who set up the Cut River Mission Station, is case in point. He was equipped with a trustful piety of absolute belief in divine favour and wisdom, as are many who are driven by religious fervour. And the specific religion doesn't really matter. Williams was facing three distinct pressures in 1816. One was the colonial government, which was trying to arrest former slaves and recover stolen cattle. The other was the internal tension amongst the amat between Nika and Nklambe. And the third was his struggle to convert that Khosa to Christianity. One of the most important advisers to the governor of the Cape, Lord Charles Somerset, at this time was also someone who was unusually interesting. Somerset's wife had died soon after he arrived at the Cape, leaving him to look after their two daughters, and to his credit, he travelled with them rather than leaving them behind in Cape Town. Minding his health was the governor's official physician, Dr. James Barry, who was by far the strangest personality in his official party. Barry had obtained a medical degree from Edinburgh University at the age of 15, a prodigal child, then joined the army. He served in Malta, St Helena and the West Indies, as well as India, amongst other locales. Dr. Barry was another of the pre-Victorian British eccentrics for a number of reasons. One was that he was an extraordinarily gifted doctor. All agreed about that. He was also quarrelsome and brash, abrasive and opinionated. He fought a duel while at the Cape, which he won, and much later, when he left the Cape, he ended up as inspector of hospitals in Britain. Doctor Barry eventually died in eighteen sixty-five, and as his corpse was stripped and reclothed, it was found to everyone's shock that Doctor Barry was actually a woman. She was eighty-five years old at her death, and for nearly seventy years of her life, since before she arrived at Edinburgh to take up her medical course, this slight-figured and sensitive-faced individual had turned herself into a woman dressed as a man in a man's world. What is really mind-boggling is that she fought in wars, travelled in wagons across southern Africa, fought duels and ran entire hospital systems, all the while dressed as a man and did it so well, no one had the slightest inclination that Dr. Barry was not a man. She exceeded as a man at a time of exceedingly tough and rough men. Barry outmanned the men, if you like, including overcoming Captain Josias Clouty of the 21st Light Dragoons. They decided on a duel with pistols, and in one early Cape Town morning, Dr. Barry's aim was better. His bullet struck Clouty's shako military cap and removed its peak, and Clouty submitted. If you think about it, Dr. Barry's example of feminist resistance escaping from the role of women in society at that time must stand out as one of the most remarkable anywhere at any time. It is also ironic that this woman's story intersects with ours here in Southern Africa, but her relationship with Lord Charles Somerset is shrouded in mystery. During the posting to Cape Town, Barry became a close friend of the governor and his family. Dr. Barry helped Somerset's eldest daughters survive what was thought to be a fatal fever and it's thought that Lord Charles discovered Dr. Barry's secret and that the relationship was more than friendship. Their closeness led to rumours, and ultimately an accusation briefly appeared on a bridge post in Cape Town on the 1st of June, 1824, saying that the writer had detected Lord Charles buggering Dr. Barry, which led to a court trial and an investigation as homosexuality was at that time strictly illegal. Despite these allegations, Somerset continued to employ Barry, and much later, when he lay dying in England, the doctor rushed to his bedside to nurse him through his final hours in 1831. The British government, by the way, was so sensitive about the claim that Dr. Barry, erstwhile inspector of British hospitals, was a woman, they ordered all her documents sealed for over 100 years. I'll come back to her story later. It's worthy of a full treatment episode, I'm sure you'll agree. But now we must focus on the upcoming war stoked by Nghele, the war doctor. By 1817, the Cape had been reinforced with several hundred men from two regiments, the Royal African Corps, who were black soldiers from West Africa, and the 60th Regiment. Somerset was concerned. All the men of the 60th were depraved and regarded as deserters and criminals of the worst type. They were offered military service as an alternative to long penal servitude. When the first batch of 60th Regiment troops arrived at the Cape, infantry were sent to board their ship and maintain guard because there was a plot to seize the vessel and sail away. In June 1817, Somerset wrote to Lord Bathurst back in England that I cannot employ the description of soldier of which the 60th Regiment is composed, foreigners, deserters from all nations, grumblers, and of general desperate and bad character. So he had the men sent to Robin Island as prison guards. The merit of the idea was that out in the shark-populated bay they were as isolated as the prisoners. A set of the most desperate villains and worthless thieves and vagabonds that ever disgraced any country in the world, railed Somerset. What followed was probably the most notable escape from Robin Island ever reported. A whaling station had been established on the island and a ship anchored offshore to load whale oil. A group of men from the 60th Regiment, together with convicts, rowed out to the ship and seized her. They threw the captain and members of her crew into a long boat. Then a convict, who had served in the Navy, took command and the whaling boat moved off in what observers called a seaman-like manner. The soldiers tore off their regimental insignia and threw them into the sea. A few hours later... A naval vessel headed off in pursuit, but lost her in the Atlantic vastness. The convicts and the men of the 60th got away. This is also a story for another time. Those of the 60th who remained would have regretted not joining their comrades, considering what you're going to hear. The Royal African Corps and 60th were sent to the frontier, and their actions were going to bring the entire British military name into disrepute, and then recover it. The colonists, the trekboers, feared the Amatkoza less than these men, and begged Somerset to remove them, they were causing chaos. The Khoi and mixed race clans in the region and the Amatkoza regarded them as a curse on the land. However, many of these men of all nations and all races deserted the Royal African Corps as well as the sixtieth, and went to live amongst the Tkoza. They discovered what others had found before them. The shipwrecked Portuguese and Dutch, the Americans, the French, the German and the British sailors, the runaway slaves, the military deserters of all colours, and even free-booting Boers, all discovered that life amongst the Amakosa was to their taste compared to the torture of the life at the time. Once there, these men were committed for life and spiced up the Amakosa bloodlines and made the people even more dangerous because they took their knowledge of European ways into their new relationships. These men fought hard against the British because they knew if they were captured, it was hanging or some vile punishment that awaited. Remember last episode how Inflambi had overcome his young nephew Inglika at the Battle of Amalinde. It's time to recount two major events linked to this conflict involving the British army that was to further sour relations with Amakosa. You know how Commander Brereton had arrived at the frontier to defend Nghika and how he seized tens of thousands of cattle and driven Nllambi into the forests. And sitting alongside Nllambi by now was his war doctor, Nghele. Watching all of this from Graham Stein was the commander, Major George Fraser. He had already sent a commander against Nllambi earlier in 1817, and the Major was about to fall into a trap set near Nllambi's great place when the Boers on the commander convinced Major Fraser he was about to be outplanked. And Columbia, you see, had broken his army into three and was trying to entice the British to attack him, then would fall on the soldiers from the flanks. The Boers had fought for 200 years on this felt and knew that attacking a retreating rearguard in Africa was fatal. You should never attack a bee's nest from behind but in front, they told him. It will never do to fight the cause so far in their own country. Wise advice, and Fraser luckily took it turning back. But the Boers wanted some treasure from this commander and convinced Fraser to attack Nguika's people instead. Two thousand of those cattle were seized and a dozen men shot dead. Nguika was completely incensed by this. Once again, the inability of officials to tell the difference between different black clans had bitten them. You've also met the other important character in our story, Tiani Chachu. He was living with the missionaries at the Kat River and was sent to meet with Fraser in Grahamstown, the message from the causa chief was as follows. You have ruined us. Fraser's response was jaw-dropping. Were there Senghika's people that I attacked? asked the gormless major. You know very well, Chachu admonished him. The venerable major then fell silent. But from then on, this became known as Fraser's blundering commander, a knowing operation with British connivance, allowing the Trekboers to seek compensation from any Xhosa they came across, a blunt force on a land where many blunt forces were preparing to respond. The shooting up of Ngnika's people was so close to the Kath River mission that they could hear the gunshots. Fraser declared he was innocent of the motive, but the Boers were not. They knew full well they were inside Ngnika's territory when they began helping themselves to his cattle. What a downright mess! And it was to become even messier. What an appalling blunder, attacking your own ally. Diani Chachu warned that the trust between Inrika and the mission was broken, and immediately the Scots missionary, Williams, felt the bonds between himself and his own workers weaken. Inrika's tenuous hold over his people was shattered. Chachu left the mission station, which meant Williams didn't have an interpreter. Fraser's blunder had broken this earnest young Scotsman. Within days, the missionary collapsed with a fever, and five days later, in August 1817, he was dead. His wife wrote, I appointed four young men to put the body into the coffin. I then took my fatherless infants by the hand and followed the remains of my beloved husband to the grave. Back in Cape Town, Lord Charles's epitaph was terse and blunt, he called Williams, timid and illiterate. It was a year later that Columbia defeated Nguika at the Battle of Amelinda, and the British suddenly realised that they had no intelligence-gathering capacity at the Cut mission station. For some months after Williams died, they depended on their military posts along the Great Fish River for updates, along with farmers like Robert Hart, who lived below Brankie's Hoogte. They also had Andri Stockenström at Horof There was only one other British-linked habitation between Koza country and the military headquarters in Grahamstown, and that was a small mission station called Theopolis, which was close to the coast. Missionary George Barker ran this tiny enclave, and it's from here that Somerset began to receive worrying reports about what Nllambe and his war doctor Inglele were up to. After the terrible Battle of Amalinde, where hundreds of Ngika's warriors had died, Somerset had mobilized troops under Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Brereton of the Royal African Corps. Joined by a large Boer commando, they had swept into Xhosa country. Over 23,000 of Inlambi's cattle were seized. Some say 3,000, others say as many as 9,000 were given to Inlika as a kind of reparation for Fraser's blundering commando the previous year. But both commandos inflicted deep scars on the Amar because they looted, raped and murdered women and children. Breartin retreated once he had completed his mission ransacking the entire region around the Fish River, and he was immediately fearful of the consequences of his actions. He warned Stockenstrom to remain wary at Kraf Reinet, saying, Those who have been so greatly punished may attempt an incursion into the colony. Everyone who lived along the frontier began to hear reports that the Amakosa wanted revenge. After Briotan's actions, the Amakosa said openly We are without milk and the new king in liquor would not give us any so we must get some from the white man's king who has taken all our cattle and left us to perish. And so large scale raids began by Christmas day of 1818 and by the end of January 1819 the region of Albany was in flames once more. Most of this region was back in Amakosa hands by the end of the month and five British soldiers including two officers were killed in Kosa ambushes. Captain Gethin of the 72nd Regiment was one of the dead officers. He had fought with the Duke of Wellington on the European Peninsula campaign and had helped defeat Napoleon. The Amakosa warriors, though, made short shrift of this hero, leaving him in bits with over 30 stab wounds. The frontier collapsed. Somerset's system of posts along the Fish River frontier were exposed. They were supposed to stop Amakosa rustling and raiding, but they were paralysed with fear the soldiers shut themselves inside their strongholds and prepared their defences. Boer farmers and their families fled the frontier once again, and on the 5th of February, 1819, one of the Boers sent a desperate note to Brereton in Gramstein. We have all gathered here at my place and don't know how we shall get away. For God's sake, please come to our assistance. We shall try to make our escape tomorrow, if we are still alive. On the 9th of February, 1819, Brereton sent Major Fraser to Cape Town with an urgent appeal for help, travelling overland. Fraser galloped the 600 miles from Grahamstown to Cape Town in six days. Remarkable what fear can do, and that's what's meant by the phrase, don't spare the horses. Jacob, Carlay, and Eutenhag had already sent a note to Somerset saying there was chaos on the frontier. The governor ordered reinforcements to head back to Grahamstown, but these were only ready by the end of February, and they set sail from Cape Town for Algoa Bay. Breartan, meanwhile, was doing what many colonial officials do when the going gets tough. He resigned and left South Africa for England, retiring, he said, on pressing private affairs. And so, just as the Amatosa were gearing up for the most audacious attack on the British in the Cape, its senior military commander fled the region. The terrible truth here is that Breartan had only been in Southern Africa for a few months, and yet he managed to leave a deep and indelible mark on its history. And South Africa's loss was to be England's woe, to mix a metaphor once more. At the time of the 1831 reform riots in Bristol, he was in charge of the troops. Breton helped put the right down, although with some difficulty. After the uprising, he was accused of sympathising with the mob, and controversially court-martialed in January 1832, during which time he committed suicide. Twice a widower, he left four children. And so, with Brereton gone from Grahamstown, Somerset cast around for a new commander, and luckily there was an accomplished soldier at hand, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Wilshire of the 18th Regiment Light Infantry Company, another veteran of the European wars. He was to become a veteran of African wars. He had fought against Napoleon between 1808 and 1814, and his nickname was Tiger Tom. Martial law was declared, and in March 1819, Tiger Tom set off for the frontier. The governor's plans were to ensure stability on the frontier, but now those plans were in ruins. He had briefed Wilshire not to commit to a battle before he was sure of victory, and he wanted Columbia destroyed. Wilshire had heard about Stockenstrom's opposition to Brereton's scorched-earth techniques they had created such a deep resentment amongst the Ktausa that nothing good awaited the British in the near future. Because Brereton and the Boer commander had ransacked the Amaktausa territory with such gay abandon, Somerset's course was now set for him. There was no more entreating with Ntlambi. it was death or glory. They had to continue to destroy rather than negotiate, whatever Stockenstrom thought. Meanwhile, In the deep forests north of where East London is today, Clambe was spurred on by his war doctor, who had had more visions. It was time for revenge, to take the war to the British. The Fifth Cape Frontier War, also known as Makanda's War, was upon the region. Ntlambe had already let his warriors loose, though. They had raided the Boer farms and fortified posts by January 1819, often waiting for wet weather because they knew the colonial's powder would be damp, and this was the best time for an attack. Then, suddenly, all went quiet along the frontier for a month. What the British didn't know was that Ntlambe had withdrawn his men from the Albany region, this area formerly known as the Zurfeld, and was massing thousands in the impenetrable Fish River bush in preparation for what has been called the most ambitious military endeavor in Xhosa history. At midday on the 12th of April, 1819, 10,000 warriors from Intlambe's Amararabe and Amakunukrabe people of Patu, the son of Tungwa, joined with other Koza allies and attacked Grahamstown. At the head of the warriors was the six-foot-six-figure of Ingele, the war doctor, the soothsayer, the seer, who was going to surprise Wilshire with his European-style battle formations. What happened next was a close-run thing, and is for episode 78... Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, Salagati.